Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award-winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The school year is well underway, and that means many students are working away on their science fair projects. Because I'm old, I remember the days of styrofoam planets joined by wire and exploding volcanoes that involved a lot of baking soda. Today, we wanted to take a moment to hear about some projects from young minds who are going well beyond what most of us could do in high school. Anoush Mutiala is a grade 12 student at Chinkuzi Secondary School in Brampton. He's the inventor of a wireless headset system. It's called the Enerspike. Vinnie Goo is a grade 11 student at Markville Secondary School in Markham, and he created a device that scans for skin cancer. Both of these projects were recognized with national awards from Youth Science Canada, and they are both with me with their award-winning projects in our Toronto studio. Good morning to you both. Morning. morning. Vinnie, tell me about Dermascan. What is it? Dermascan is an online application where you upload an image um, of your skin um, taken from your phone camera, of course, um, and it will predict whether you have skin cancer or not, and it will classify the image into um, different types of skin lesions, and it will tell you which one it is, so you can get a better idea of your health conditions. How do you go about creating something like this? Give me the, the origin story, the genesis of this. When I was in grade 10, a lot of people around me started like getting um, worried about their skin conditions. Um, whenever they're exposed to the sun for a long time, for mm-hmm. example, um, they get some skin lesions on their on their skin. It's usually in the form of dark spots. And many people have the concern of asking, like, is this cancerous and am I going to die from it? And that led me to um, start working on this project to help people... Um, get a better understanding of their um, own conditions. How did you do it? What did you start with to make this? So I started by learning all about AI algorithms Mm -hmm. and machine learning models. And I eventually, after several prototypes, I ended up with an architecture that um, I invented myself uh, called SIFT CNN. And it has a high accuracy in predicting um, skin cancer. How does it work once you've created this stuff? And a lot of this is stuff you've created yourself, as you said. How does it work? So basically how um, an AI like this would work is you input a lot of images um, into the AI model um, and help train it. Well, in my case, I had about 100,000 um, images of skin lesions. Um, some of them are cancer, some of them are not. I classified a total of seven types of skin lesions. And I inputted them into the model, and it takes a few hours to train. And after training, um, when I input some new images of skin cancer that it has never seen before, based on the previous images that I have seen, it can predict um, what the new images are. So it's trying to match, if you take a a photo with your camera, it's trying to match that with the images that it has in its library. Basically, um, it's based on what it has learned. 
If you didn't have access to machine learning, we talk a lot about artificial, artificial intelligence on this program. If you didn't have access to that, would something like this be possible? This would not be possible without machine learning because um, it is the basis of um, my models. How different is it from other similar tools that might be able to detect whether a lesion is skin cancer? There has been some attempts at this problem in the past. However, um, they usually result in very low accuracy. However, um, I incorporated a technology um, to help my model better detect the minor small details in the image um, in order for it to um, get a better prediction. Just the last question on this. We'll come back to it in a moment because I want to see how it works. But is something like this, do you think, going to replace the people who might do this work otherwise, before AI, people were having to look at those images and say, well, I think this might be, do you think that something like this could replace those individuals? It could not replace um, professional dermatologists. However, it basically does the same thing. It gets you a pre-screening mm. very fast online and it's um, very accurate. So people living in rural areas that maybe have to drive a few hundred kilometers to get access to a professional dermatologist would be able to do a pre-screening at home to see if they have skin cancer. All right, I'm going to come back to this because I have a couple more questions about it. It sounds super interesting, but Anoush, you've been here listening. Tell us about, about what you created. This is called Enterspike, as I mentioned. What is it? Yeah, exactly. So you might already be familiar with cochlear implants. There's like hundreds of thousands of people around the world that have these implants and they uh, usually have some type of auditory impairment, meaning they can't hear as properly as someone with uh, fully functional uh, pairs of ears. And using these implants, they're able to restore their auditory function, right? Mm. So we also have technology available that kind of seems like science fiction in the sense that we can restore mobility to people that have physical impairments like ALS or motor neuron disease. Uh, and we're able to create these implants that we insert into the brain to read from the brain and translate that into some type of robotic movement. So right now there's only 40 people globally with these implants compared to like hundreds of thousands of people that use cochlear implants. And the, the reason being either you have to deal with a wired setup, which is essentially trading one physical restriction for another, right? Or if you vouch for the existing wireless implants, the issue is these can only run around like three to five years on the batteries that they're implanted with. And you end up requiring brain surgery every five years to replace them. And that obviously puts patients at risk. Mm. So I designed a system, like an algorithm that we can essentially use on implants and design hardware based on this algorithm to make low power implants, meaning it uses significantly less power, around 70 times less power than existing um, algorithms, such that you would essentially never need to replace wireless implants again for the purpose of battery replacements. So how does it work? What would it, what would it do if somebody needed that sort of technology? What, what would it do for them? Yeah, so what I did with like this EG headset that I have here. Mm -hmm. So you usually record uh, EG from the scalp. Electrical activity from populations of neurons. Brainwaves. Brainwaves, exactly. But the issue is, like, if you looked at these brainwaves, they look like kind of uh, child scribbles. Like, you wouldn't be able to interpret them unless uh, you're a professional in this field. However, we live in the age of AI, mm -hmm. so I ended up going down that route. I trained an algorithm that can specifically run on a niche type of hardware that's coming out uh, and taking the neuron as a design inspiration. I designed an algorithm that translate the activity that we've been recording from this headset into spikes. And then I trained an algorithm to predict whether someone's thinking about moving their hands or feet. So like 
end-to-end recording activity and then translating it into some type of uh, movement based on that. So somebody would wear the headset yeah. and then they have an implant? Yeah. And what is picked up on the headset would trigger something in the implant that would then move those muscles? Exactly. So in general, when we're talking about these implants, the reason why they're so power consumptive is that they are constantly running and processing this information. And you can imagine thousands of you know gigabits of data processed every hour. Because your right? brain is just yeah, busy all the time exactly. doing a million you have things. Thousands of neurons that are firing. If you use like a traditional computing architecture, like our like computers that you know Vinny has and I have, uh, it would be streaming constantly at around like a thousand hertz, meaning you're taking thousand samples per second, right? Uh, however, if we took an event-driven approach, which is what our eyes do, our ears do, which is we only spike neurons whenever something new happens. So using that paradigm, you could reduce the amount of power required to do predictions because you're only doing predictions when something changes. For example, if I'm physically disabled and I want to change the position of my robotic arm, that's a new event. So I will only make an inference or a mm -hmm. prediction using my model when there's a new event and I'm significantly reducing power because of that. I feel like I've gone back to school. I'm learning a lot here. Where did the idea for this come from? Why did you want to make something like this? Yeah, so like when I was younger, like I used to read a lot about Stephen Hawking Obviously, he's in a completely different field from what I'm in, being in physics, but his story is really inspirational because he was able to overcome motor neuron disease, or ALS, uh, and was able to reach millions of people globally with the use of human-computer interfaces, which is kind of like a primitive version of what I'm working on because with his technology, which was super custom-built for him back in those days, uh, he was able to speak at a rate of 15 words per minute. You could imagine that's like extremely slow compared to like what I'm doing right now, but because of that, he was still able to reach millions. Now, I imagined, what if we used technology like this and we were able to restore his complete you know, communication ability? He would have been able to communicate at a much faster rate and he would have had a much greater impact on society. And that's, that's, you believe, the kind of far end of this kind of technology is that it would speed up that ability... To communicate with others. To communicate with others. Yep. You have this thing in front of you. I mean, yep. just describe what it is. It, it's like a, it looks like a headset with a bunch of things at the bottom of it. Right. Yeah, it kind of looks scary, but <laughs> the general premise is you have these electrodes and you put like a saline solution into it, which is conductive, mm -hmm. uh, and you're able to measure the electrical potential off of the scalp. And you just have to put that headset on with yeah. the saline solution and that would allow you to Record. read those brain yeah. waves. And I'm like streaming in like activity right now, but like obviously it's not on my head, so it just looks like a bunch of spikes on my screen. But if you were to put it on... I could probably like meditate or close my eyes and I'd be able to see clear changes in specific frequencies of my brainwaves. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I have more questions, but I'll come back to you in a moment. Vinny, tell me how, I think there are a lot of people, as you said, who might be in communities where going to the dermatologist is a long stretch. They may not be able to get there. It might be out of the way. It might be the weather prevents them from going. And so this allows them to do it at home. How does this work? Can you explain from your perspective how, how your, how your uh, technology works? Give me a demonstration. So basically, um, as you can see on the screen, this is my website for my AI. Mm -hmm. I uploaded my model onto this, this website. Mm -hmm. And so people from all around the world could access this website. And then they basically need to take a picture of, for example, like their skin using um, their phone camera and mm -hmm. upload it here. I, I can show you a picture okay. of a okay. skin cancer. So we pretend so, we took a photo, and then there's there's a, an image of a lesion on on somebody's. This one is is an image of 
a melanoma. Okay. As you can see, this is really severe. Mm -hmm. And when we upload it onto um, the model, you can see it here. We press classify image. It will give you um, a prediction of melanoma and it gives you a confidence rate of how confident it is that um, it is melanoma. How, what does that say? How confident um, is it? 92%. 92% confident that that's melanoma. So confidence rate basically means um, what is the possible um, results of this prediction. For example, melanoma is 92% of the predictions and the other predictions might be like 8% of other lesions. So since melanoma um, takes the like majority of it, then the prediction is melanoma. And then you would take that information and realize I really need to go and see somebody. I have to try to figure out how to get to yes. the dermatologist to see somebody Exactly, person. You would um, need to go to a dermatologist to help you finalize this result and to see if whether you or not you do have melanoma indeed. How accurate is it, do you think? The overall accuracy of my model would be 90%. 90%. 90%, um, including predictions of skin cancer and skin lesions. How do you think this could be used? I mean, do you have, people always have a, a personal reason why they create something. Is there somebody or something that you're thinking of that, that would be better off if this technology was in their hands? Several, because there's um, relatives of mine in rural parts of China, for example, and um, in rural parts of Canada, they essentially live in a forest and when they actually have some conditions to they, that they want to check out, um, it's not possible for them. And that's part of the reason why I developed this. So they can use this website and they can predict whether or not they have some conditions that they need to check out. And this could effectively prevent them from getting the stages of skin cancer that are actually would harm their lives. Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. When do you think that something like this could be available? I mean, what, what is the plan for something like this? You, you, you take it to, to uh, this event and you're given this award, but what happens with it now, do you think? Basically, I'm testing my prototype on real life patients right now. Um, about a hundred of them. So, and after testing, I plan to work with some professors in some industries to help um, better my model and to help make this product, Dermascan, um, available to the public. So like everyone around the world can use this model uh, free of use to detect their skin conditions in just the click of a button. Free of use? Free. It's the kind of thing that you could sell, but you want to give it away for free. Yes. Why? Because I think this would honestly help a lot of people when they're worried about their their um, skin, when they actually um, have some malignant skin uh, mutations um, that they they worry about or they want to get checked out but couldn't. Mm. Um, this would help them, like make their decision and help them give them like a result, so they could go see a dermatologist and get it like. Treat it. Anush, for you, what do you see as the potential of this? Where and who do you see it helping? 
right now, there's only about 40 people globally that is benefiting off of this technology, which I find crazy. But given the implications of receiving an implant like this, which is either you're tied to like a cable for the rest of your life or you have to get, um, you know, surgeries every five, uh, four to five years, it makes sense because there's no alternatives. But, this is this is a wireless headset. Yeah, like the, the idea behind this is whatever I tested on is a proof of concept for future implant applications, which are completely wireless just as this is. But like, yeah, the general like future for this type of technology is if we have an alternative, which is completely wireless and you never need to maintain it for, you know, some type of battery replacement purposes, you could have a single shot solution for patients with not only motor disabilities, you could have people with Alzheimer's essentially rerouting the connections between the hippocampus, which is like uh, organizing memories with your amygdala, which organizes um, your emotions. Basically, those two regions of your brain are the key regions for uh, memory processing, right? So if you have Alzheimer's, you could have an implant similar to this and never need to replace it because it's super efficient, power consumption is really low, and you could reroute these connections so people can remember again. So there's like a wide ranging set of applications for this. I mean, you, you're one of the people who's helping to create this. Is your mind kind of blown by what it is that you're able to do and what AI has allowed you to do? I think people who are listening are gonna hear that, hear that idea that somebody with Alzheimer's down the road yeah. with this kind of technology might be able to remember again. Yeah. And it's going to, it would set them back. What about for you? I feel like I've been in this field for like so long, quote unquote, for like, I've been <laughs> As working a grade in 12 student yes, for continue. like three years since grade nine and just kind of been desensitized to the fact that I'm working with really cool technology that, you know, if I told to someone that's new to the field, it just seems like something out of the matrix. But like, yeah, in my opinion, like it just seems like the most logical step forward to get rid of all these neurological disorders that are kind of just putting a weight on society. And yeah, I just hope to continue to work in this field and make an impact. What was it like to to go to this National Science Fair and present it, but also to win an award for what you've created? I think it was like a moment of validation for me because, you know, in the past, I've been working with different companies on technology like this and did my own research, independent research. But I think going to the national fair and winning something there on the national stage was just like a validation for all the years of work that I've put into the space and recognition that I got from there mm-hmm. was definitely like a like jumping pad for what I did afterwards, which, uh, you know, I took whatever I did to the next level, working with um, labs downtown and all across the country to uh, take the next step. Vinny, I know it means a lot to your parents because they're here uh, and they're listening to our conversation. What did it mean to you to go uh, to this fair and win? Well, going to this fair was really an experience. It helped me um, get a better understanding of what I lack in my science project. And it helped me gain sort of validation for my work um, because I have never um, presented this to anyone else um, before the the science fairs. You must also just feel really good about what you created. I do, of course. What happens now? You're in grade 11. If I talk to you in 10 years, where do you want to be? I don't really know. I might be continuing to work on this model. I might be working um, on some other project um, that could potentially have a bigger impact in healthcare, or I could be working on something totally different. Um, You never know what the future holds. You're going to create the future. I am. I think so. Okay. I think so. What about for you, Anoush? You're you're graduating, right? Yep. Again, same question. If I was to talk to you in 10 years, where would you want to be? I always tell my friends, like, Something that would be funny is if I'm 
competing head to head with Elon Musk in the race to getting people implants. Um, you know, he has his startup uh, Neuralink, which is kind of always in the media because it's in Elon Musk's company. But um, I feel like their approach compared to what I'm taking with like this brain inspired computing paradigm uh, to make stuff low powered is like something completely new and outside of the uh, domain of what people in the existing industry is working on. And if I, you know, continue through my education and end up founding a startup, that's probably a very likely uh, pathway that I'll be taking. You head to head against Elon yeah. Musk. Yeah. You'll come back and tell us who wins that competition. We'll see. Fingers crossed. Great to meet you both. Congratulations on what you've done. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Vinny Gu and Anoush Mutiala are both award-winning high school students with me here in Toronto alongside their very proud parents. Bonnie Schmidt is the founder and president of Let's Talk Science. It's a charity that works with young people interested in STEM, and she is in our studio in London, Ontario. Bonnie, good morning to you. Good morning. What do you make of these two young men? Wow, like sitting here with just the biggest smile in my face right now, I just want to first start with a huge congratulations to both Anush and Vinny. They are remarkable innovators and have just inspired me to get back to my own work after 30 years at Let's Talk Science. It truly was wonderful to listen to them. What is so remarkable to you? I mean, I'm here and I'm trying to keep up with what they're doing, what they're explaining to me. To you in this world, what is so remarkable about what they have accomplished so far in their lives. Well, first of all, they're they're so young and they have such a solid handle on their fields. I really loved the comment of, you know, I've been in this for so long. <laughs> for three, three years. years. <laughs> I thought that was absolutely brilliant. For me, a few things that really jumped out was the empathy. You know, these two people trying to make the world better, try to improve living conditions for people. The other part, too, is the technology, the you know use of, of AI and machine learning and algorithms just goes to show that when we were in school, like we weren't talking about that. And this has become foundational skills and abilities that our young people all need to get a better handle on. Uh, their confidence really shone through. I, I think that they just were remarkable in how they presented the clarity with which they were able to communicate. But I absolutely think Elon Musk has got to run for his money, for sure. How do you create the conditions for students like that to be able to, to find something that they're interested in, but also lean hard into it? Yeah, it's such a, it's such a great question and complex. <clears throat> we need to create an ecosystem in which everybody, not just a few that are, are leaning in on a particular topic, but that everybody starts to develop opportunities to explore their passion, that they can build the kinds of skills that they're going to need to be able to dig into that next level of technology. You know, starting very young, we need to be encouraging questions and curiosity and wonder and empathy and resiliency. That's really been the work of Let's Talk Science over the past 30 years. How do we help people recognize that STEM, the science, technology, engineering, and math, it's not an end point, mm. but it's a wonderful platform to help us ask questions about the world around us, to develop improvements, to really help us move forward and, and you know, build on that kind of wonder of the world. Everybody's involved, everyone, parents, teachers, family, caregivers, friends, peers, celebrities, raising the bar and making STEM accessible and not something over in the corner for, you know, an elite bunch. It's got to be everywhere. I want to come back to the accessibility part, but you used mm -hmm. my favorite word, which is wonder, a couple of times. And often mm -hmm. wonder 
can be seen as a luxury. That's nice for kids, but you know, we have to focus on, on serious issues and taking the time to slow down and wonder why things are happening and dream and kind of be creative can be seen to be, as I say, a luxury to some people. How do we reverse that? How do we encourage people across the spectrum to understand that that in itself is a gateway? Oh, it's, it's critical. And you know, years ago, I read that kids will ask lots of questions until they're about age seven or eight. And they'll stop asking those questions unless they are encouraged to lean into it. It is a foundational human behavior to wonder. And yet you're absolutely right. Too often we think that to be a luxury when in fact it's going to be wondering how do we fix climate change? How do we deal with health problems? How do we actually make the world better and more sustainable? Wondering, curiosity, questioning, and then the skills to actually lean into the problem solving is going to be so critical. You said in some ways that there is a push to make this field more accessible so that it's not just for an elite few who might be off to one side. How do you create the environment and create a field where, where, where everybody feels welcome, where it is for everybody, not just the people who are going to invent a device that's going to scan to see whether I have skin cancer? It's so interesting. Um, we need to help people recognize that science is a human activity and everybody has got legitimate questions in their own world. And in fact, Anush and Vinny talked very much about being inspired by people in their own world mm -hmm. and wondering how they could make their lives better. And that's happening with every child across the country. We're trying to find more and better ways to help with tools, to help with resources, to help educators who may not have a background recognize and find tips and tools and activities that really help to engage all kids, regardless of abilities, regardless of background, regardless even of, of language. Do we need to think how we teach these subjects? I mean, again, to your point, we saw two young men here in the studio who, who are drawing on real life problems. And you hear that when it comes to the climate crisis, you talk to young people and, and they want to figure out a way to tackle things that are right in front of them. Does that mean that we need to think differently about how we teach those subjects? I, I would love to see us move to more of an, a multidisciplinary approach to learning as opposed to those traditional science courses, right? Instead of biology, chemistry, physics, math, English. Why aren't we looking more at an issues-based programming in which you bring in the tools from very different fields to come together to understand how we might be able to, to look at health differently, to look at food and agriculture differently, to look at the big grand global challenges which cannot be segregated into traditional fields. It really is interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary issues focused. We also have to do better to bring arts and humanities together and more tightly interwoven with the scientific disciplines because you can't separate that. If we continue to teach in distinct subject areas, I think we really miss an opportunity to, to get people to think differently and really to inspire that wonder that you talked about earlier. These two guys feel like they're going to change the world. People will be really struck by the enthusiasm, but also by the commitment and the generosity of the two young men that we just met. You could sell this product off, but they're gonna give it away so that somebody who can't get to a dermatologist is able to, to, to access that, that, that device. Well, isn't that, isn't that remarkable? I, I really heard empathy through both of them. Mm. And that is also a critical human quality that we need to do more to develop. So wonder and empathy and resiliency.
How do we get more people to identify and lean into challenges of other people and then have really interesting ways to try to solve the challenges? And that, that's where STEM or multidisciplinary approach really does start to come into play and it can unlock the potential, unleash the potential of even more young people across the country. This is at its heart um, a good news story. Uh, I'm really glad to talk to you about it, Bonnie. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bonnie Schmidt is the founder and president of Let's Talk Science. She was in our studio in London, Ontario. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.